You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning. I just wanted to take a minute and tell you that we are off and running in our desire to raise money for the renovation of the Floyd Center. Um, you've already given on the very first Sunday and pledged over $530,000 toward this project. Uh, when you add that to the money that you so generously gave at the end of last year, $400,000, that brings us to $900,000 and over $30,000 toward this, this drive, leaving us uh, only about uh, $560,000 short of our $1.5 million budget. So I just wanted to say how much I appreciate everything you're giving and uh, the progress we're making. So if you haven't given yet, it's definitely not too late. We'll be receiving pledges over the next few weeks. And so feel free to turn in a, uh, a card uh, and close your offering if you'd like. Um, and let us know that you're going to be sharing with us in this project. Annette and I, we're away for a week, uh, taking some vacation time. But it's always good to have Dr. David Busick in town. And it's even better uh, when he's in town and preaching for us on Sunday morning. And so I know you're going to enjoy the message this morning as Dr. David Busick opens the Word of God to us. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Eric. I feel like that's feel right at home here, and, and it is a joy to be back among the people I love the most in the world. And uh, thank you to Pastor Rick for the invitation to be here. The, the advantage of preaching at Bethany First is that um, I get to be with you. And I don't have to reintroduce myself over and over again when I'm, when I'm with you. The disadvantage is, is that um, there's four to 500 sermons that I could preach anywhere else in the world, but I can't do it here. <laughs> so... I, I've been working this week on a, on a new sermon that you've never heard because I've never preached it. And I just want to share with you this morning some ways that I think God is speaking to me during these days and challenging me. Uh, Christy and I, as you know, are in a brand new role and, and uh, being a general superintendent is, is a very different rhythm to life. And no one was more surprised than last summer when when we found ourselves uh, being chosen for this position. But at the same time, we are so excited. We feel like we're on some kind of an adventure with God and the church to see what God's doing around the world. And we look forward to sharing more with you as, as we go. Um, Going to get to be at SNU this week and looking forward to being with Blair and the rest of the SNU community. So be in prayer about the SNU uh, fall renewal time. Take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the New Testament. The book of Revelation. How many of you know it's not Revelations? It's not in the plural. This is not a group of Revelations. This is one Revelation that was given to a man by the name of John the Revelator, and many believe was John the Apostle, maybe even the John who wrote the Gospel of John, one of the disciples of Jesus. And this is, this is a passage that's really been challenging me in the last few months about not just the church at large, but about my own life. And so 
I want you to listen in to what this says. And I would invite you to stand with me, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word. It's Revelation chapter 2, and it begins with verse 1. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, here's the warning, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. You don't hate the Nicolaitans. You hate their practices, which I also hate. I hate those practices too. So whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Ephesus was, was one of the most influential and impressive cities of the entire first century. And, and uh, if you were to visit Ephesus to this very day, you would be actually surprised with the size of it and the scale of it. You would see these massive buildings that were still standing, some of them dating back to the first century and before. You would see the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Oh, I see we got pictures. Okay, that's very good. You would also see one of antiquity's greatest amphitheaters, that this amphitheater could seat 25,000 people. By the way, that's more than the Chesapeake Energy Arena where the Thunder play. It's huge. You would see gladiator graveyards showing the most popular entertainment of the day, and you would see hundreds of houses and shops and streets, all dating back to thousands of years, and they're all still standing. You would see all of these things, but the one thing you would not see today, either in Ephesus or in any of the surrounding towns and villages, is an active church. You wouldn't see one. Now, if that's not a little bit of a shock to you, maybe it's because you didn't know that at one time Ephesus was the major center of Christianity in all of Asia. In fact, the early Christian writers used to highlight Ephesus as the model of Christian faith and life and witness. And it was even the host for some of the great church councils of the 5th century, that place where from all over Christendom people would come and they would talk about the Christian faith. And that's, this is where they confirmed the Nicene Creed. So it was one of the most important Christian cities in the region for hundreds and hundreds of years. But there are no active churches there today. Churches that had once been the centerpiece of what we call Byzantine Christianity, they've, they've all been stripped of their altars, their, their, their crosses are all gone, and now they're being turned into mosques and museums, and frankly, some of them are just being left to rot. That would have been unthinkable 
to John's audience, the people to whom he wrote this, it would be kind of like me telling you, did you know that in 2100 there will be no Christian churches in all of Oklahoma City? Can anybody even imagine that? And did you know that in 2100, Bethany First Church is actually going to become a giant flea market? Would that surprise you? We, we can't even imagine that scenario, but, but it actually happened in Ephesus. Christianity has effectively died in, in Turkey. This, this land that, that was once the missionary domain of the Apostle Paul, that was once so fertile for sowing the gospel, and now has a Christian population of less than 1%. The church there is, is literally in ruins. And as shocking as that may feel to you, that, that is precisely what Jesus warned could happen, the Ephesian church, when he said in verse 5, if you don't repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. John had been exiled to this prison island. It was called Patmos. It was really nothing more than just a small rocky island, four by eight, right in the middle of the Aegean Sea, about 80 miles to the southwest of Ephesus. It was the Roman version of Alcatraz. And John the Apostle had been banished there for the cause of Christ. And he begins this book of Revelation by saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then he describes this stunning vision that he has of the risen, exalted Christ who is, who is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands and who is holding seven stars. And this vision just completely knocked him off his feet. And, and we're later told that the seven lampstands represented the seven key churches of Asia and that the seven stars represented the angels of those churches. By the way, if you're ever playing Trivial Pursuit, and, and the question is on biblical numbers, go ahead and say seven because there's a very good chance that's going to be the right answer. It's, it's the biblical number for completeness. It's the biblical number for perfection and it shows up 52 times in Revelation alone. And so there are seven churches and there are seven angels, not because there weren't six of them or not because there weren't eight or even 21 of them for Jesus to send this prophetic message to, but, but because this is a message about completeness. This is, these are messages not just for Ephesus and Thyatira and Laodicea and all of the other seven churches, but these are messages for all churches everywhere for all time who will listen to what the risen Christ says, the risen Christ who is here in this, in this lampstand called Bethany First Church. And so what did Jesus say to the church in Ephesus and what would he say to us here today? Here's the first thing he said. I have seen your hard work. These, these were not lazy people who just kind of showed up at the church on the weekends to pay their respects. These, these were active, committed Christians who were, who were busy working for the kingdom of God and they were going about it with all of their might. Their problem wasn't idleness. It wasn't lack of commitment to the cause of Christ. They were hard-working people. And Jesus said, well done on that point. And then Jesus said to them, and I've noticed that you don't tolerate evil people. Now, I, I put it more like this. I've noticed that you really want to be a holy church. 
they, they, were, they were against sin. They were against evil. They didn't want even the appearance of ungodliness to be in the church. And it wasn't that they didn't care about folks who weren't believers. They just said, we will not compromise our faith. So good job on that. And then he said, finally, you have patiently suffered without quitting. And you're steadfast. You, you don't cave in when the going gets tough. You, you're steady and you're enduring persecution for my name. I mean, these were some people who had lost their jobs. Some people couldn't shop in the marketplaces because they were Christians. Some of them had lost loved ones and many of them had lost their own lives for the cause of Christ. And yet they just keep going. They persevered. Jesus said, well done. You are hardworking people. You are holy people. You are steady people. Those are all really wonderful things. But, Jesus said, I do hold this, this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. Another translation says it like this. You have, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Your problem, he said, is lack of love. They were doing a lot of good things. They were doing things for the right reasons. But, but slowly but surely, their love started to grow cold. They, they had lost their first love. This past week, I was thinking about first love. And I, I know a little bit about first love because I was in it once. I remember the first time I laid eyes on Christy. We were uh, 16 years old and... It was the 4th of July at an 89ers baseball game. They now call themselves the Red Hawks. Back then they were called the 89ers. And Christy was there with her parents to see the fireworks. And I was there with my buddy to pick up girls. <laughs> and uh, my, my friend and I, we spent about seven innings on the first base side trying to do some evangelizing and share the good news over there. Um, wasn't very interesting or they weren't interested something was going on over there so we like good christian young men we shook the dust from our feet and we went over to the uh, third base side to evangelize over there for a while it was the top of the eighth inning when i spotted her 16 and one of god's really good works of art i have always appreciated the lord's handiwork and this is one of his really really good ones Christy was, well, she was well put together. She had this dark summer tan and, and she had this, this long, blonde, Farrah Fawcett hairdo. Anybody, you had to live in the 80s to understand what I'm talking about right there. She had big blue eyes and she had a smile that just messed with you. So I finally said, I'm going to go talk to that girl and I introduced myself to her and a couple weeks later we were on our first date and I was hooked and at the time, I was driving my car, which was a 1972, many of you weren't even born yet, uh, before this car was made, but a 1972 Chevy Impala. Now, I'm going to have to describe this car for you, because uh, I didn't drive a 72 Chevy Impala because I'm that old. I drove it because I was that poor. It was yellow. It was a big yellow car. It had terminal acne on one side it was dying of rust on the other the interior was awful it was like this kind of pale green that made you think antibiotics are a good thing and people get in case you didn't know this if you've never had your first car 
one of the things we often do, especially guys, is we nickname our cars. And we nickname them so that when we really need to kind of get something out of the car, we can call it by its nickname and sweet talk the car. For example, you might, you might call your car, say, Old Bessie or, or Mary Jane or something like that. I don't know what you call them exactly, but what you, you use that for moments when the car needs to kind of come into action, like you're, you need to start it on a cold morning, and so you say, Come on, Bessie, be good to me today. And, or you're trying to pass an 18-wheeler on the highway or whatever it is. You know, you just you use the nickname. I was trying to nickname my car, and uh, Old Yeller had been taken, so... I decided to call it affectionately the tuna boat. I called the tuna boat because it was the biggest car I'd ever seen and certainly the biggest car I'd ever driven. It was so big, if I was going to parallel park the tuna boat, I needed like four empty spaces to do it. I'm not kidding. They had to have like a GPS to find the trunk. And, and when I went to go pick her up in the tuna boat, it wasn't all that thrilling. I mean, I, I had to put like $20 of gas in to go see her in Moore, Oklahoma. But the good thing about the tuna boat was it had this big, roomy front seat. It wasn't like bucket seats like they have today. It was just really, really big. And so when she got in the car with me, she could scoot right over close next to me. And I, I don't think we thought that much about seat belts back then, but if we would have, we could have shared the same seat belt. You know, people, people would drive by and they would see us. They'd think, hey, there's a two-headed driver. <laughs> it's just one minor problem. Uh, Christy had a dad that wasn't nearly so impressed with me as she was. And, and Christy's dad had this rule. And he said, Christy has to be home by 9.30 on weeknights. Nothing could happen by 9.30. He knew that and he wanted her in. But, but I did learn this. 9.30 didn't mean I had to go home. It just meant she had to be home. And so what we would do at 9.30 is I would bring her home and then we'd go into her living room and we would sit and we would watch TV and we'd just, we could sit there for as long as we wanted or at least until the light came on. And when the light came on, that meant that her dad was coming into the kitchen to get a drink of water. I never knew how a guy could be that thirsty as he was, but he was always coming in the kitchen for a drink of water. And about the third time, I knew that uh, the rapture was going to happen. Uh, she was going to be gone and I was going to be left behind. And that meant I'm done getting drinks of water, time for you to go home. But believe it or not, the night wasn't over yet. Because she would say goodnight, she would go to her room, and I knew exactly where her room was because she had a window that faced the street. This was before cell phones. And I would back out of the driveway and I would leave, but Christy would stand at the window, she opened the curtains, and she would wave at me. And I would drive around the block and around the block <laughs> and around the block. I know it's just sick to think about, isn't it? I mean, it just... He said, what are you talking about? I'm talking about what happens to you when you have first love. Now, now I'll admit to you, I've been married now for 30 years and Christy doesn't ride right next to me like she used to. I don't mind it, it just doesn't happen very often. 30 years later, we don't have to do the same things we were doing when we first met, but now we just kind of glance at each other or we know each other's smiles or we just have these looks we give each other or sometimes it's just a kind word. But we communicate way more today than we did even 30 years ago. Things have changed. But I want you to know something. Even though our first love is now matured love, it can't cool off. 
The conditions can change, but our passion to serve one another in this marriage, it cannot change. Are you with me? I was talking to my friend Terry Rollmeyer yesterday, who's a pastor, and, and he said he heard a preacher named Gary Hineke who was giving a sermon to Nashville First Church after they were like 100 years old. And, and he went to one of the old-timers in the church and he said, tell me what the church was like. What's the difference between the church 50 or 60 years ago and the church today? And he said, I thought maybe he would say something about the music or I thought maybe he would say something about how the standards have changed. But he said he didn't. He looked at me and very thoughtfully said, intensity that's what's changed the church 50 or 60 years ago was really intense I don't see that anymore and, and I tell you that because I, I am convinced that, that there's two ways that we can look at this passage and, and I want to admit to you that for years I read this passage in Revelation 2 as a call to return to first love for Jesus and and that maybe the Ephesian Christians' passion for Christ had grown cold and what Jesus was saying, you guys, need to, you guys need to get closer to me again. And certainly, there's no doubt about it, love for God is primary. Love for God is central. That's where it all begins. And I have preached dozens of sermons right here in this pulpit to you about loving God. But the more that I've studied this passage, the more I am convinced that this this passage is not particularly about falling more in love with Jesus. That, this is not a passage about Jesus and me holding hands on the couch. This is about how we express our love for Christ by the way we express our love to each other. See, this is more about what we are doing. I... I never had seen it before, but I looked and it said, repent and do the things that you used to do. Do, do the works that you did in the beginning. And, and I missed this point for so long that when we talk about Christian love in, the Christi in a sense of Christianity, love is not something that we feel. There may be some emotions involved. Of course there will be from time to time. But it's not rooted in an emotion. It's not rooted in how we are feeling. It is rooted in what we are doing. It's about the way that we live in the world. It's the tangible expressions of sacrificial love that we are doing for the cause of Christ. The way we show hospitality, the offering generosity and feeding the hungry and taking care of the sick and watching out for the forgotten and treating outsiders with respect and solidarity with the poor and forgiving offenses and praying for our enemies. That's a part of what Christian love looks like. It's not an adjective. It's not something like I used to think that you just attach it to a noun to give a description of what you're about to do. Christian whatever. Christian love is not an adjective. It's a verb. It is something we do. It is actionizing. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I'm going to make it up. It's actionizing the message of the gospel. And I'm not, so, I'm not sure why it took me so long to figure it out because it is so clear all the way through the New Testament. You read the Gospels and that's what it's about. You read the book of Acts. That's exactly what the early church was doing. You, you look at the church letters of Paul or Peter or John 
And it's so clear that that's what Christian love is. But I missed it for so long because I have been acculturated by the way our society thinks about love. And the way our society thinks about love is it's more about what's in it for me and it's taken me some time to understand the difference. But something happened in Ephesus. I don't know what it was exactly, but something began to change. Something, something started to turn that others-focused, serving, sacrificial love they had in the beginning into something that my friend Scott calls spiritual boundary-keeping. Spiritual boundary-keeping. Now, that was a new term to me, and maybe it's a new term to you, so let me, let me try to describe for you what he means by that, and I think he's right. Spiritual boundary-keeping is having this oversensitive, maybe even hypersensitive concern that everybody's keeping the rules and everybody's doing things just right and just so and making sure that everybody else's life is on track. And boundary keeping happens when we start to think that believing the right things is more important than doing the right things. And that, and that maybe right theology and getting things just right there, that that is actually more important than loving people. Or, or that when my moral purity begins to trump compassion for broken people, when I start to think about the Christian life in such rigid ways that it becomes more important that I protect what I currently have than it is to actually make disciples in the nations. That's what moral and spiritual boundary keeping is. And when I read most of the commentators on the book of Revelation, almost every one of them said there's a very important connection between the Ephesian church's kind of heightened boundary keeping and the loss of their first love. Because you can't, you can't heighten your level of boundary keeping and also have first love for people. In fact, I, I read this from William Barclay and I thought this was so good I wanted you to see it. He's got some big words in here, but if you really grasp what he's saying, I think you'll understand this passage. He said, It may be that a hard, censorious, critical, fault-finding, stern self-righteousness had banished a spirit of love. Strict orthodoxy can cost too much if it has to be bought at the price of love. So in, in their zeal, in their passion for moral purity, they, they had lost the centrality of love. And, and I want to say to us that it is very important to believe the right things. You know me. You know that's important to me. It's very important to protect the essentials of our faith. But if we are doing that and losing our ability to love, we're in serious danger of losing the essence of who we are. And I want to get really personal for a second, or I should say close to home, and talk about this church that we all love called the Nazarenes. We call ourselves Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, which means that we're part of a really, really big church of over two million people. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in the church is that we believe in holiness of heart and life. We believe in a pure heart, but we believe that it, it, it produces things in the world. And when we talk about the word sanctification, 
What we're talking about is we believe that the holy God sets certain things aside and certain spaces aside and certain people aside set apart for his purpose. That's why in the Old Testament people were setting apart normal things like spaces and sanctuaries and they were consecrating them and sanctifying them to say this is the place we're going to do holy things. And by the way, this, this sanctuary we're in is a, is a sanctified space because many of us have had very significant spiritual moments in this sanctuary. Some of us experienced the love of God here for the very first time. Some of us have made lifelong commitments in this space that we're talking in right now. Some of us were married in this space. Some of our children were dedicated in this space. So there is a sense in which this is a set-apart, sanctified space. But you see, what we believe is not only does God set apart places, but he sets apart people. And he calls his people to be separate, to come out of the world, and to be, in a sense, sanctified for his use in, our, in the way we represent him. And, and I think God still does that all the time. I think many of you have been filled with his spirit, purified in your heart in order to be his vessels. And, and I think the Nazarenes have been pretty good at this. I think, I think we're, we think there are certain things you can't do anymore because you're a Christian. How many of you knew that? There are certain places you can't go anymore because there's implications for how that you are called to live your life as a holy person. And this may not have happened for you, but because of that, I, I grew up in a place where there was a whole list of do's and don'ts because I kept hearing, you've been set apart. We don't do those things because we're different. We, we don't do this and we don't do that because we separate ourselves from the culture. And Nazarenes have got this one down cold. We score really high on this one. And, and let me say something. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we emphasize that ceremonial part of holiness without balancing it with the relational part of holiness, we can get really messed up. And here's why. When you separate yourself and you say, I'm different just because I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do, then what we can become is like this holy huddle where we just all hang out together and we... We basically ignore the culture and have lots of potlucks and we wait for Jesus to come back and blast, it out, blast us out of this sinful world that we're in. And quite frankly, when that's all we become, we get kind of creepy. We get kind of weird because we start getting strange for all the wrong reasons and we end up being known more for what we're against than what we're for. And the problem is, is that misses the whole point of what it means to be called out by God because when God calls us out, when he separates us, he fills us for the purpose of being a blessing in the world. Jesus said, I don't want you to be of the world, but I certainly want you to stay in the world. In other words, you cannot disconnect your holy relationship with me from your holy relationships with each other because holiness is about those kind of relationships. And if you or I say we love God, but we don't love our neighbor, then we're just lying. That's what John says, that we're just deceiving ourselves. And if, if you don't drink or smoke or chew 
but you're meaner than a junkyard dog, you're not holy. I hope you understand where I'm coming. That's actually a more insidious version of of carnality than the original version. God save us from any holiness that isn't nice. Have you read Facebook lately? God save us from any holiness that isn't kind. God save us from the brand of holy living that doesn't really love anybody. (laughs) Because we don't do anybody any good if we're just ceremonially clean and we're separate from the world, but relationally we're just a mess. Are you with me? I'm going to wrap this up. There are very few of us here in this room, if any, who are believers because somebody morally argued us into the kingdom. You didn't get here because somebody said, here's some things you ought to get changing in your life. You are here because God demonstrated himself in the life of a spirit-filled body who loved you and showed you to the love of God and that wooed you into this relationship. And unfortunately for the Ephesian church, they got so interested in protecting their boundaries that they risked giving up the very force that had enabled them to be the church. And if their first love cannot triumph somehow over their spirit of of being sure everybody's morally pure, don't miss this. Here's what, uh, this is what Jesus says. This isn't what David says. If you don't change that pattern, Jesus said, I will remove your lampstand. If you lose the primacy of love, the unthinkable is going to happen. The community you have in Ephesus will no longer have a church because you will have ceased to be a church. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, it's so natural for those of us in a rapidly changing culture to have this desire for purity and this fear of conformity that causes the church to want to unite and fight. That's what the church is kind of known for right now. Who are those people? Well, they're the people who unite and they fight all the bad stuff in the world. But unfortunately, being united by what we're afraid of and being united by what we hate is a very bad substitute for being united in a love for Christ. There's a a really early church tradition which says that when John, the person who wrote this, when he was a really old man, he was so weak that he had to be carried to church by his disciples. They picked him up in his arms and he lived in Ephesus. So it was the church in Ephesus. They used to carry John to the church. And at these worship services, he he was known for just saying one phrase over and over again. He just kept saying, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And after a while, the disciples of the church, they all got kind of sick of hearing it and they were weary of him just repeating himself. And they finally said, Master John, why do you always say this over and over again? And and I love what John said. He said, I say it because it is the Lord's command. And I say it because if this alone be done, it is enough. Is it really enough? My brothers and sisters, in the end, 
what this may be telling us is that love is all we have. We will not win the world through our arguments. We will not win the world through our power. And believe me, after 49 years, I can tell you this is true. We will not win the world by rule-keeping. We will win the world for Christ through His love. And we will win the world when they say not only see how they love one another, but when they say see how they love us. And God will be glorified. And the church will flourish. And the kingdom will come. Can you trust love? Stand together for prayer. Father, thank you for the message that you're speaking to me these days about my first love. And Lord, it's not that I don't want to know you in a new and deeper way because I think that will transform many things. But Lord, I also know that the way I love you is by the way I love other people and I haven't always done that perfectly. But thank you for teaching me and thank you for reminding us that in the midst of all of the things that we're doing and in the midst of all of the things that keep a church going, that we can't miss love. Lord, restore any love that has been lost in us. We repent of any ideas of love that say that it's more about what we're not doing than what we are doing. And Lord, help all of us to be a reflection of the love that changed our lives in Christ. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said together, Amen. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our thought of us. You thought of us before the world began to breathe. You knew our names before we came to be. You saw the very day we'd fall away from you. How desperately
living Christ who walks among your people today, this lampstand called Bethany First Church. Thank you for seeing all that we're doing. And thank you for calling us to remember our first love. Lord, there's a lot of reasons why we could be praying today. Every one of us need to seek that passion we had at first. But most of all, Lord, we pray that you would do such a transforming work in us that, that we would continue to be your people. Thank you for what you're doing in this place, the way you're giving us a brand new vision for this community. And help us to remember, Lord, it's, it's not just to be the church. It's, it's to be love in this place. So send us out from here to be your hands, your feet, your light, your voice. And we will give you praise and honor and glory. And everybody said together, Amen. And the Lord bless you and keep you. Let's continue to pray. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.